The podcast that you're about to hear contains acts of sex and violence. The hosts do not claim to be experts on the subjects that they present. Listener discretion is advised. And welcome, boys and girls, back to Brutal Nation. I'm your illustrious host, the Wana, the only Scott Alexander. Right across from me is the Wana, the only, the beast from the not-so-far east, Tammy, the underdog, Underwood. Say dun-da-da-dun. Puppy power? <laughs> nah, okay, fuck it. Close enough. Well, that's what I thought of when you said Thunder Dog. No, I, I thought about that too because I was trying to think of what the, what uh, Underdog said. Oh, I don't know. Dun was uh, Scrappy Doo. That's Scrappy Doo. Yeah. Ah, shit. Because I got the anyway. So this is going to be part three. Part three of, of Robert Picton. Of Robert Picton, the pig farmer. The pig farmer. Farming some pigs. Right. Well, you know, because remember his case was like took decades for them to catch him. And then, you know, of course, then it took years for them to even put him on trial. You, and know, then, you know why, right? Why couldn't they catch him? Because he was greased? I don't know. No. He is the bacon provider. You don't fuck with somebody who fuck, who has your bacon. I'm just saying. <laughs> like, I'm pretty sure I would sacrifice a lot of shit to make sure I got bacon. Right? <laughs> There's just some things you don't give up. Exactly. Anyways, so... By the time it went on trial, I mean, by the time the trial started, they were 16 weeks into this trial before they had even started putting a face on the um, the victims, right? Is it like putting lipstick on a pig? No. Dude, hang on. I, for some reason, my mouse isn't working. Your mouth or your mouse? My mouse. Oh, okay. Give me a minute. I got it. I got it. You sure? Yeah, I figured it out. Are, are you over there like, I don't know, like flicking the bean or something? The what? Flicking the bean? No. Masturbating? Shut up! Because I can't see it. We've got banks of monitors in front of me, and I've got a freaking uh, uh, a sound screen trying to cut down on some of the shit that it, this thing no, picks up on. No, I just can't get and, my mouse to work. But hopefully we'll have everything redesigned in here this weekend. <laughs> hopefully. Hopefully. Why? What are you doing this weekend? we got to hang the, the, the sound curtains, and we got to arrange some shit. Wow. I want to cut down the sound in here because it's, yeah. it's way echoey and I get sick and tired of having to go through and take out all the sound. Good idea. That's in the background. It's, it's tedious and gives me red ass and it takes up too much of my goddamn day. <laughs> okay. Anyways, <laughs> let me carry on. <laughs> carry on my way. I, I had son. a visual image of you with a red ass and it kind of scared me a little bit. Oh, but it's sexy. Oh, spank <laughs> me, big mama. Spank Anyways. me. It's so good. Anywho, so... As you know, so they had gone 16 weeks into the trial. Then they finally, finally decided to call up. The uh, prosecution had five key witnesses that they wanted to call against the defendant. Did they have any lock witnesses? No. Because they only had that keys, but you need locks. Your dad jokes are not ringing true today. (laughs) So all of these were Robert's known associates. The first one they brought in was 39-year-old Gina Houston. She was an illegal pig dealer. She's like, hey, baby, what you need? I got your pork chops. I got your bacon. You want a rump roast? Are you done? Yes. Okay. Gina was a drug user and battling breast cancer when she took the stand in a wheelchair. She was so frail, she couldn't even hold the prosecutor's binder filled with the exhibit photos. Somebody had to hold it for her. Damn. Now, yeah. So she and Robert actually had an extremely close relationship. In fact, both of her daughters would refer to him as daddy. 
<laughs> I have a lot of girls who refer to me as that, too. Anyway, I knew you were going to go there. Apparently, they um, met in the early 90s, but they didn't become friends until sometime around 96 or 97. And she claims that theirs was not a sexual relationship, but she would often visit him on the farm and she would take her kids with her. In fact, he actually taught her how to slaughter pigs. During her testimony, she said that she felt Robert was a positive influence in her life who took a parental role with her three children. And since they had become close friends over the years, he had given her approximately $80,000 to help her pay her bills when she was struggling. Okay, you know what? That's decent, man. That's decent. Right, but she claimed she didn't know why he gave her that money, but she, she did say that she spent at least half of it to buy her marijuana and cocaine to support her habit. You know... So he gave her money to pay her bills, and she used 40000 over the years to, like, you know, support her habits. Now, during her testimony on February 20th, 2002, approximately two days before Robert was arrested on murder, according to her testimony, she says, on February 20th, 2002, before Robert was arrested, because remember, his trial didn't start until way later. Right, right, right. Um, on murder charges... She was sitting in his car with him when they had what she described as a, quote, nervous conversation. She said, Willie told me we had to do something. We had to do it before Friday. He told me there's only one way out. The prosecution asked her if he was, if he, you know, Robert was suggesting a suicide pact. And she said, yes. Now, she also told the jury um, that he said that they should uh, commit suicide together and she says, I thought he was joking. And then I noticed he had tears running out of his eyes. He did not want to go to jail. Apparently, Robert blamed her for everything he was going through. However, he never offered her an explanation of how he, conclu- he concluded that. Um, apparently, while they were sitting in the car, she talked about a conversation they had had the previous year. Um, apparently, they were on the phone together and she heard a woman named Moan in the background, a woman moaning. Or whatever. Once I, again, happens to me a lot. Shut up. <laughs> Leave me alone. Sometimes, well, in my defense, sometimes it's, oh, big daddy, that's good. And sometimes it's, let me out. Let me out. I'm not a prisoner. Let me <laughs> Anyways. Call the police. So when they were on the phone together, uh, she heard this woman in the background. Now, right in the car that day, he told her that the woman's name would, had been Mona. And although Gina didn't know what Mona's last name was, one of the six victims listed in the indictment for his trial was Mona Wilson. Moaning Mona. Moaning Myrtle. No, no, she's moaning Mona. <laughs> Mona, because she, heard, she uh, that, that chick heard her moaning in the background. Yeah. So according to Gina, Robert told her while they were on the phone that day that Mona got hurt, and he said when he hung up the phone, he tried to do everything he could, but she didn't make it. Now, Gina told the jury that she asked Robert if he called the authorities to help Mona out when she was hurt, and he said no, he didn't call anyone. And when, G- Regina, when, G- Regina, when Gina asked him why, he hesitated. So she was curious, so she pressed him further. She told the jury, she goes, I asked if she was still somewhere in the piggery, and he said yes. I asked what was oh, next to her. called a piggery? Yes. Dude, that's fucking awesome. I didn't I know. know that. You didn't? No, I, I thought um, I, I figured that seri- on, on a serious note, me not even joking. If she's somewhere on your pig farm, and then like, no, eh? But I didn't. Th- Is she somewhere on your piggery, eh? I don't. <laughs> wow. <laughs> now I know that's a piggery. Yep, piggery. So, and he said yes. She said, "I asked what was next to her. He told me one, two, three, four, five, or six bodies. Right." 
I don't know why he counted him out like that. If that's what he did, I know why. <laughs> one, yeah, exactly. One He's a fan body. of Sesame Street too. <laughs> Let's see what we have. One, <laughs> one dead body at the piggery. Two, two dead bodies at the piggery. Ah. Uh, You're going to love this uh, even more. She testified she wanted to know more, so she asked Robert where in the piggery. He allegedly responded by telling her they were in the slaughterhouse room dedicated to cockfights, referred to as the cockpen. That is awesome, man. I'd say you <laughs> it's like what? a boning room. <laughs> no, like, like I, uh, I, I tried to get into cockfighting once, and I trained for months, but apparently cockfighting isn't exactly what I thought it was. <laughs> Apparently, it involves chickens. <laughs> it is not. My name is Intigo Montoya. <laughs> <laughs> Did not realize that cockfighting involved chickens. That's all I'm saying. We were lifting weights and everything. Yeah. So during most of her testimony, Gina's testimony, Robert kept his eyes down. He would occasionally write notes, which he passed over to his attorneys. However, when she told the jury she had a significant amount of affection for him still, he suddenly stopped writing and tried to make eye contact with her, but she never took her eyes off the lawyer who was questioning her. She, like, wouldn't make eye contact with him. Well, it's kind of a... I, I, actually, I'm serious. I kind of understand that. Yeah. Because, like, okay... Like, I have a lot of affection for you. With all my jokes aside and everything like that. You and I, I are you great, do. great friends. But if the if I was in that same situation, I know because of of our closeness and our and our great friendship. Right. You know. It'd be hard to yeah. if I make eye contact with you, it would kill me to be sitting there mm-hmm. and kinda knowing that I didn't have your back. You know right. what I mean? Because I am that friend. Like if you had a body, I will help you dispose of the son of a bitch. Right. And I will just never talk about the shit again. <laughs> right, exactly. No, I mean, and yeah, so I do kind of understand that. And sadly, you know, Gina uh, succumbed to her cancer in April of 2010. And it was while she died while the Canadian Supreme Court was still deliberating their decision to grant him a new trial or not. So she didn't even, you know, she didn't die any with any closure on that. You know what I mean? Right, um, right, right. However, there was a question about whether or not, uh, you know, because she was such a key witness in the first trial, that if he did get a second trial, how would that affect it? But Canadian law says that since her original testimony was under oath, the prosecution could submit it as evidence for the jury to consider it in the event of a second trial as her testimony in that trial as well. Okay. And I think America has that law, too. I was just thinking if we did, I think... I think you're right. I think we do. But I'm not 100%. Well, they also have deathbed confession, you know. Yeah, they, no, I knew not about that, yeah. Con, you know, but, yeah. Uh, it's essentially deathbed yeah. confessions. I mean, yeah. if, you're, if you're dying, you know, and you know that you're checking out, and yeah. pretty much nothing's going to happen to you. Yeah, pretty you're, much. You're already dying. You know, you're, you're, they know you're dying. And if you're going to give up some bodies, like, hey, look, I, I know that you have me for two murders. Right. But there's two more bodies and this is where i left them you know dude even if you live a month two months six months or a year they're not gonna do dick they're gonna find the bodies they're gonna give some closure and you know because i mean why why pursue you if they know that you've only got okay let's say that they know that you've only got five more years to live right okay because you're sick and they know between now and five years you're gonna die Mm -hmm. why why would you even go through all that expense exactly and all that time to literally accomplish nothing unless you're in Florida. <laughs> well, 
you know, but that goes back to Cesar Broni. He he was literally dying. And they asked him, you know, about this one case that they, you know, they he was a prime suspect in. Nobody had any, you know, they never made an arrest. And he says, I want to talk to my attorney. He died two days later. He would not have changed his outcome in any way. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But he was just being a dick. No, this, this is true. Well, okay, if we're going to go down that road, there's, there's John Arthur Aykroyd. Oh, yeah, him too. And we... There's no proof that he has more bodies, but in my heart of hearts, oh, he killed the stepdaughter. Please, yes, and he has other victims. That's my in my heart of hearts for his, her brother. Yeah, you know. Oh, totally. You know, but we 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 know what's up with that. And mm-hmm. even on his deathbed, he's like, "I'm not telling you anything." Why? Because he's a douche. But you know what? I can't get up and down these fucking stairs. <laughs> yeah, that's all. Yeah, I, I remember hearing that confession, the, uh, yeah. the the interview with him. Uh, well, it's mostly it, it's mostly I'm the victim type mm-hmm. of a thing. I can't even get up and down the stairs, and they won't do anything for me. Nah, rah, rah. You're not a victim. Fuck yourself. Yeah, no, no. Okay, I'm not gonna bitch because we got to make it through an episode. Because <laughs> yeah, you, you know me with 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 uh, with, with Ackroyd. I will get I on. I that was a hard case, and that, it yeah. was hard for me to cover it. Because I travel up and down Highway say, you, 20. You take that road a lot. Yep. That route a I'm, lot. I'm up and down 20 a lot in between uh, the coast and I-5. Yep. So yeah. every time I'm looking, going through the, those woods, I'm all, think, um, hmm, hmm. That, I wonder. That's the place that, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, totally. So their second key witness uh, was a guy by the name of Pat Casanova. Now, he was a former suspect in some of the murders. Approximately one year after Robert was arrested during the preliminary hearing phase of his trial in January of 2003, the authorities took Pat into custody. They thought he was connected to 15 of the 26 deaths. In fact, he was suspected in five of the six that Robert was being tried for in that first trial. According to reports, Pat and Robert met in the late 80s and they had a, quote, business friendship. In fact, Pat told the court he stayed at the Picton farm almost every weekend after he and Robert became friends. He claimed he and Robert slaughtered pigs together on, on those weekends. However, when he was pressed further, he said he only purchased the butchered hogs and later sold the meat to customers. He, he, you know, he was trying to say, I didn't help him kill anything. That's what Kermit said about Miss Piggy. Oh, my God. So, <laughs> with the slaughtering practice process pat told the jury robert did most of the work he used the nail gun to kill the animal before he stabbed and gutted it with a knife he pat also claimed that two of them the two of them would process up to 20 to 50 pigs every weekend now when gina houston was on the stand the week before she told the jury she knew pat from robert's farm apparently he often asked her to bring prostitutes over on the weekend for his entertainment she said there were many instances when she would arrive with a woman and he was there alone and robert wasn't there which is why the defense tried using her testimony to cast reasonable doubt on their client's guilt. Now, Dale Previtt, the one of the prosecutors for the Crown, had asked him a set of, asked Pat a set of questions, and he what he asked included: Did you kill any women on the Picton farm? Did you see any women being killed? And did you help anybody dispose of the remains on the pig farm, on the Picton farm? And Pat responded with "No, sir" to every question. Right. Right, right. He was also, Pat was also asked why he thought the Vancouver authorities took him into custody in January 2003. At first, Pat's like, you know, he didn't answer the question. He was like silent. Then finally, after Prevert repeated the question several more times, Pat finally told the jury, I was arrested and held in custody for five or six hours. But he didn't go into detail. Now, during the cross-examination, 
one of the defense attorneys tried to discredit his testimony, as he should, right? On February 15, 2002, before Robert was arrested and charged with the first two counts of murder, detectives questioned Pat about his association with Robert. They questioned him a second time after Robert's arrest on February 26. Then during the preliminary hearing the following year, he testified for the prosecution. Brooks addressed Pat when he read directly from the transcript from his first interview in February 2002, where he said Pat got a blowjob from just one woman at the farm. He identified her as Roxanne. Reading from the February 26th interview transcripts, Pat told the detectives the same thing. At that time, he was asked if he was confident in his response, and he answered he was. Wait a minute. Blowjobs are like Pringles or like Lay's potato chips. You can't have just one. Yeah, you can't just have one. Don't tell me he only got one blowjob. Like, <laughs> like for real. Once again, I, and I always have to say this because I'm always such a smart ass. All of my joking aside, once a guy has a blowjob and enjoys it, by the way, because, you know, yeah. if, if you're with somebody who's a pecker wrecker, that, that's going to take it off the table. Um, <laughs> oh, you're laughing. But the guys out there know. They're like, mm, Scott's right, because that shit's happened to me. I'm like, no, I know it has, man. You know, I'll uh, name some names. I'll bet you I can name three names, and there will be three of our listeners out there with those names. I go, yep, let's see. <laughs> let's go with Bob, Mark, and Jake, not my son. I oh, bet me. you there's three of our listeners out there with that, with that name. It's happened to me. Yep. No, no, I had, I had a pecker wrecker. Like, she had a bad tooth or something, and it was like going through a Cuisinart. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, he's not getting just one. Yeah, he only got a blowjob from one. Her. Yeah, from one bitch. woman at the lying farm. motherfucker. Yeah, you know that's a lie. So under cross examination during his tri- the trial, Pat admitted he received oral sex from three women at Robert's farm. Okay, that's about what right. A woman named Angel. It had already been established like for my the dog? record that no, yeah, but it had already been established for the record that Angel's real name was Angela Josbury. Now, she was, and she was one of the victims listed in the indictment. So, Brooks said to him, you know, the attorney goes, your statement I just read out to you, given what you've told us about Angel, is a lie, correct? Pat, maybe I did, sir. Brooks, not maybe, you did. (laughs) It's like, whoa, dude. Brooks also addressed Pat's initial claims about being on Robert's farm only on the weekends, arriving on Saturday and leaving early on Monday morning. The defense attorney says you're trying to minimize how much time you put in on the farm. You're trying to show I'm hardly there. I can't have anything to do with it. You are at the farm virtually every day of the week, right? Yeah, he's getting blowjob on blowjob. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, so anyways, why does this keep doing this? Hang on, sorry about that. My mouth keeps doing something fucky. Anyway, <laughs> something weird. Well, that's what I heard about you on Sandy Boulevard, so, too. Whatever. So once Brooks presented the evidence he had to support his claim, Pat tried to backtrack his original statement. He admitted to being on the farm throughout the week as well. He said that when he was at Roberts, they slaughtered and butchered hogs, packaged the meat, and stored it in the freezer on the farm. He also told the jury he would retrieve the packaged pork from the freezer when he took it out and sold it to his customers. He testified... He had nearly full access to Robert's personal trailer, as well as the other areas around the farm. He said Robert often hired women with a drug addiction to work on the farm so they didn't have to work low track. And according to Pat's testimony under cross-examination, frequently over the years, he would give the women money in exchange for sexual favors. So again, more than three. (laughs) 
He also told the jury that at various times when he was in Robert's trailer, he noticed several items of clothing and purses belonging to women who were not there. However, at no time had Robert talked to him about the women reported missing from Lotrack. In fact, he could only recall one specific instance when he witnessed Robert express any type of anger. Now, official transcripts from law enforcement interviews indicate Pat had been a long-term, ongoing relationship with a woman named Lynn Ellingson. Before Robert's arrest, Lynn and Pat allegedly had a conversation about all the women reported missing from the downtown east side. During that conversation, she supposedly discussed collecting a $100,000 reward being offered to anyone with information about the disappearances. Now, when Brooks questioned Pat about that and another alleged conversation between him and Lynn, which took place after Robert's arrest, he held his ground. He emphatically claimed he had never witnessed any suspicious activities at the farm, nor had he seen bags of body parts, specifically legs, in the meat freezer, and he denied talking to Lynn about any potential evidence the authorities collected during their search of the farm. He also denied telling Lynn he saw the frozen legs. Okay? Now, by the time Brooks was finished, the defense had gained some confidence in their strategy. They were able to show the jury Pat could easily lie under oath if he thought it would protect him. At one point during one of his interviews, he told a law enforcement official that he always told the truth. And after Brooks could prove he had given less than accurate statements, Pat said he doesn't lie, but he is sometimes forgetful. No, no. Okay, here's the (laughs) thing, especially anybody who says that they never lie. If yeah. you say that, you're actually a liar. We all fudge the truth a little bit. Oh, yeah. Like, seriously, if a cop stops you and goes, do you know how fast you're going? Who the fuck sits there and goes? Yep. Oh, exactly. I'm in a 35 mile an hour yeah. uh, zone officer and I was doing 62 miles an hour. Nobody. We all get that dumb look. Why? No, officer. I don't. Do you know what the speed limit is? I have no idea. We all do that. Every goddamn one yeah. of us don't fucking be sitting there lying. Exactly, exactly. So so basically when he was done in, uh, cross-examining Pat, he's, he, Brooks was very satisfied he discredited him. You know, especially since they were trying to establish an alternate scenario. They were, they, there were several oper- operations conducted on the pig farm. In fact, it was a beehive of activity. Therefore, several people had access to different areas who could have committed the, the murders for which their client was being charged, right? Bullshit. Well, what do you mean bullshit? Okay, number one, at the piggery, <laughs> I am going to use that word every every chance I get. I'm going to work it in even when it's inappropriate, because I just like the word. <clears throat> but anyway, at the piggery, you know, uh, while there's a lot of people, it's a, it's a humming beehive, as the owner of any property or any company, how are you not going to know if somebody's killed two people on your on your property, three people, four people, five, six, seven people. You're gonna freaking know. Oh yeah, that's retarded. <laughs> You're so weird. That's true. It's, it's fucking well, stupid. You know, but okay. I mean, I do see what you're saying. I it, do. Well, but in a I... place that's used all the time, though, because they were in like the boning room, right? The cockpit. Oh, that's right. The cockpit. I forgot because we were, talking about, we were talking about me training for cockfighting. Okay, and now I remember. Yeah. Okay, so they're in a place that's used a lot, <clears throat> or at least quite a bit. And this guy is not going to notice, or his brother, nobody's going to notice that there's bodies there that just all of a sudden turn up. Right. You know, just mysteriously, and nobody's going to see anybody coming in and out of the cockpit. 
Yeah. Nothing like that? No. No. Yeah. No, I hear you, Sam. So anyways, then they have the third key witness. Her na- That was actually 37-year-old Lynn Ellingson, the one that was Pat's former ongoing girlfriend. Um, and she, perhaps the one offering the most damaging testimony of the whole trial. After all, she was the first witness to take the stand to testify that she had actually seen Robert with a dead body. Now, according to her testimony, she was a former drug addict and worked for Robert, performing odd jobs around the farm. I bet. <laughs> he even gave her a place to stay while she worked for him. Now, after she had been living and working at the farm for a few months, Robert took her to Vancouver with him one night. <laughs> Apparently, he was cruising for a prostitute and she wanted drugs. Lynn said Robert picked up a woman with black hair and the three of them returned to the farm together. When they arrived, Robert and the prostitute went to one room to do their thing and she went to a separate room where she consumed her drugs and passed out. At some point during the night, she said she was jolted awake by an unfamiliar noise. And when she looked out the window, she, quote, saw a bright light coming from the barn where Robert slaughtered the pigs. Curious, she went out to the barn to see what was happening. She said, I saw this body. It was hanging. Willie pulled me inside behind the door, walked me over to the table, made me look, told me if I was to say anything, I'd be right beside her. When she was asked to confirm the woman she saw hanging that night in the barn was the same prostitute they had picked up and taken back to Robert's trailer earlier. She said this woman that we had picked up at my eye level was her feet was where her feet like her legs were. Right. And then, I mean, you could tell she had no education. I seen red toenail polish on this big shiny table. I don't know what it was, but it was lots of blood and uh, hair, black hair. Well, yeah, man. If you're if it, the feet right there, you just look up. If yeah. you see a big hairy freaking yeah. bush that if if the carpet matches the drapes, <laughs> then you're probably at the right house. You're so bad. What? It's true. If you're looking yeah. for somebody who has black hair, for example, and if 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 she got a, a whole eye full of you know crotch goblin or whatever the hell she's got going on there, her, you know her freaking stench trench, it's like, hey man. That looks like the Black Forest. Well, you probably have the right person. <laughs> so, anyways, the prosecutor asked Lynn if she had noticed. Who the, the fuck hang- are you texting anyway? I'm not texting anybody. Oh, I see you over there fucking with your phone. No, I looked at my phone. Oh. The prosecutor asked Lynn, I'm like paying attention to you, dick. What? You're over there watching freaking like murder porn or something. Nah. Oh, yeah, you are. Not today. Ow, ow, ow. What the hell? My foot got stuck. <laughs> Asian midget murder porn? What the hell's wrong with <laughs> no, you? Shut up. My God foot got damn. stuck. You can't catapult a midget like that. What the hell? Not anymore. I know uh, it's illegal. <laughs> I know that now. So anyways, they asked her if she noticed the one, the hanging woman's face, and she said not her face, but it was her hair. Like, she had long black hair, and that's what was lying on the table. I just remember her toes. Was, you know, she was all over the place. So next... Lynn was asked, was Picton doing anything to the women? She replied, there were knives with blood on them. He was full of blood himself. So sometime later, before sunrise, he actually called a cab. And when it arrived, he told her she was going to take it to town to purchase more drugs. And she said instead of buying the drugs and returning to the farm, she stayed at a friend's house. And within a couple of days, she still feared for her life, so she moved away to the lower mainland, away from the lower mainland to get away from Robert and whatever he was doing. Um, Under cross-examination, though, Lynn couldn't recall when that event took place. She definitely didn't know the day or month. However, what I find interesting is that she couldn't even remember the approximate year it occurred. However, it's possible she could have blocked the trauma from her memory. I don't think it's probable she would forget the year it took place, especially since some details were still so vivid in her mind. You know what I mean? 
I don't know, man. I remember a lot. I, I'm I'm missing lots of places. I can't tell you like certain times in my life or years and shit because of massive amounts of drugs. Right. So I think it's some things can stand out, but like you know, I can't tell you. Well, you know, in oh in, yeah, in 1995, this is what happened. You know, because I, I did copious amounts of drugs, man. Right. I'm not even sure I was alive in 1995, to be honest. <laughs> I don't remember that year at fucking all. Right. Then, oh, God, I don't even want to say this next one. The fourth key witness for the prosecution was a guy by the name of, Lord help me, Scott Chubb. Hello? I'm listening, oh, motherfucker. I was waiting for you to say something. I'm just listening. You know where I'm at. You're, I'm on the other side of the fucking desk from you. Jesus fucking okay, Christ. No, that's not it. Like, normally when I say things like Scott Chubb, you would have something to say. Oh, his name was Scott Chubb? Mm-hmm. That's fucking See, awesome. See, obviously you didn't hear me. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. I'm understanding now. I'm picking up what you're laying down, big mama. Yeah. So he was a former heroin junkie and a friend of Robert's and an informant for the police. Now, this one's bizarre. Um, According to police reports, Scott frequently visited Robert on the farm and was therefore aware of some of the dark comments Robert allegedly made. Scott told the jury he met Robert in 1993 when he was hired to work part-time on the farm. He continued to work there until 2001, before Robert was arrested in early February 2002 and charged with illegal possession of a weapon. Scott had become an informant for the Vancouver Police Department, working directly with Constable Nathan Wells. According to court records, Scott had pay- was paid approximately $1,450 during his time as an informant, although he claimed he received thousands of dollars. Wells said that he obtained a warrant for Robert's property using information provided by Scott about the illegal weapons. He also claimed at the time he got the warrant, he didn't know Robert was a person of interest in the low track disappearances. His only intent going into the initial search was locating and seizing an illegal firearm. Now, the prosecutor, one of the attorneys for the prosecution, asked Scott about an alleged conversation he had with Robert. According to Scott, during that conversation, Robert said he suspected Lynn Ellingson was stealing from him and suggested Scott have a, quote, talk with her. Scott said he understood that to mean he should either, A, get rid of her, or B, physically assault her. He claimed Robert offered to pay him approximately $1,000 if he carried out the task. Now, during the initial investigation, law enforcement officials assumed Lynn was trying to blackmail Robert to keep quiet about what she had witnessed on the, in the barn. Now, after Robert alleged asked Scott to talk to Lynn. Scott told the jury the conversation took a dark turn. He claimed Robert told him there was a full, a foolproof way to kill a drug addict. Since they had already had lots of track marks, all someone had to do was take a syringe full of windshield washer or radiator fluid and inject it into the addict. Once the authorities saw all the track marks, they wouldn't rule out they would rule out foul play and consider the death resulted from an overdose. Scott also told the jury within days of Robert's arrest, he, quote, received a threatening phone call from Robert's younger brother, Dave. <laughs> Apparently, Dave, he said, Dave had threatened me. He phoned me and told me that if Willie was going to go down, then everybody else was going to go down, too. Right? <clears throat> he said he went to the Vancouver's authorities and reported the phone call in order to protect him and tell in and asked him to protect him until he could testify in Robert's trial. They relocated him and his family to a region of British Columbia interior. 
Now, since the prosecution had already established the detectives discovered a syringe with trace amounts of windshield washer fluid during their search, Scott's claims rang true with the jury. In fact, by the time the prosecution was finished questioning them, they felt he had provided them with damaging testimony against the defendant. But here's my thing. This is what kind of rings through my head. What? Why would he have this dude do it when he's already killed women right. before he already knows how to do this it's not like he's squeamish like i could never right. kill a person no this motherfucker's chopped people up i'm pretty sure he can you know <laughs> injects why why pay somebody else to do it you know what i mean right we'll see and then when he was cross-examined though everything unraveled under cross-examination he was asked he they addressed the alleged threat that scott received from dave picton robert's brother because according to the reports, Scott originally told the authorities Dave had associations with associates and with connections to the Hells Angels Club. However, Richie asked him to confirm that, and Scott said, "Not to my recollection, no, sir. I've never seen Mr. Picton, Mr. Picton with a Hells Angel ever." Then Richie asked him why he thought he should be frightened of Dave, and he says, "I was not aware of what he was capable of. His brother had just been arrested for murder." Now. As Richie continued to attack Scott's credibility, the witness came incre- became increasingly agitated until he completely lost his temper. Richie asked him if he told the authorities he wouldn't testify against Robert unless they agreed to dismiss the charges against him related to a 2005 driving incident. When Scott yelled at him and said, never did I say I would not appear at this trial. I'm here today. <laughs> you know? Right, right. So then they go through and it's like they're... They tried to uh, address the alleged incriminating conversation about the uh, the windshield washer fluid, right? Now, apparently, Scott had been telling the jury he knew Pat... Oh, no, wait, I skipped a part. Um, with, okay, so Richie asked him if perhaps Pat Casanova and not Robert had injected windshield washer fluid into a prostitute. The Pat, that Pat was Robert's, quote, partner. Now, Scott answered by telling the jury he knew Pat... And, and he often helped Rob, and that he often helped Robert slaughter pigs. Therefore, Pat could be considered Robert's partner in that aspect. However, he denied being told Pat had, and not Robert, had given someone the lethal injection. Then Richie asked if the witness remembered Robert ever mentioning he had a quote partner during the alleged conversation. Scott said he recalled something to that effect, but he didn't know who or what the defendant was referring to. Um. Then it goes through and it says, uh, pressing the issue further, Richie read transcripts of Scott's testimony during Robert's preliminary hearing. According to official records, during the 2003 hearing, a defense attorney specifically asked Scott if Robert had mentioned having a partner during the alleged conversation. At the time, Scott claimed there was mention of a partner, and the jury asked if the partner had told Scott about the lethal injections, and Scott answered, it's possible. So after reading from the transcripts, Richie continued questioning the witness. He goes, Richie goes, do you now agree? Scott, I don't remember the whole conversation. Richie, he never told you he injected someone, did he? And Scott goes, not to my recollection. So it's like he completely changed his story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Um, then it goes on that says that uh, in 2003, he filed another report with the law enforcement officials saying that he a member of the Hells Angels threatened him as a warning not to testify against Robert. Apparently, this was a separate incident from the first threat, and he called and demanded more money. Um, and it, it goes on to say that, I mean, he literally, um, he says that he demanded 30, I mean, records indicate, because uh, the, the calls were recorded, right? 
that came into the police station. So they had the, they played those for the court at Robert's trial. Now, he demanded an extra $3,500, which he did not get. Now, according to reports, he allegedly received $1,450 from the department. During earlier testimony, he indicated he received thousands of dollars. But when Richie asked him if the actual figures upwards of $13,000, he told the jury he couldn't recall the exact amount. So Richie was able to trace back almost $13,000 that was paid out to Scott over the years. Isn't that crazy? Uh, no, I, I'm not even fucking surprised, not even a little. Doesn't it? Nope. Oh, hang on. Ah, dang it. My thingy doing it again. Okay, now, um, oh, and you're going to love this one. Now, Richie took every opportunity he had while cross-examining Scott to attack his credibility, of course. Now, he, the attorney wanted to paint the jury a different picture of Scott Chubb. He fabricated the information he fed the authorities in order to manipulate them. He was just a greedy man who wanted more money and law enforcement to give him a new life. This wasn't a hard picture to paint, since Scott had changed his testimony several times during the cross-examination alone. Each time, he contradicted himself. It was to, quote, fit the facts. Richie was confronting him with, whenever the attorney asked him a question, initially he would adamantly deny the accusation, then in the next breath, confirm it. And this was especially true when he testified, testified about the gun, which led to the initial warrant, right? So he was questioned by the prosecutor uh, about the gun, and he told the jury Robert lent him the firearm, and turned around, and he turned around and sold it to another friend. In fact, he really knew little about guns in general. He'd never handled any firearms. And the only gun he had ever physically seen or held in his possession was the one in question. He said, I've seen them in books, on the internet, on television, in movies. However, under cross-examination, he confirmed Richie's claim that he had an extensive criminal record. And one of them was for possession of an unregistered restricted weapon. <laughs> that led, I'm telling you, that led to Richie pressing Scott about his previous claim of being unfamiliar with firearms. And after a lengthy pause, the witness said, it was the only gun I had during that time. The lawyer pointed out this previous arrest for being in possession of a 22 caliber gun. Richie says, you've had considerable handling of guns. And this is what Scott says. I'm not lying. He goes, referring to the gun Robert loaned him, he goes, on occasion... I've had guns when I stole them, but I never actually had guns in my possession other than that gun. <laughs> it's like, okay, if you actually have it and you stole it before you sell it, you have possession of it, right? That is freaking hilarious. <laughs> it's like, Jesus no Christ. Sense. I mean, it's like, it's just like, I don't know. It was well, I had funny. guns, but I didn't have like a three fifty seven Magnum <laughs> like, or anything. Uh, yes, I've had you guns. Did. You had a three fifty seven, but it wasn't a Magnum. <laughs> I mean, is but that I never actually a gun? had guns. <laughs> Look, I've had guns, but I've actually had guns in my possession. That makes no sense. <laughs> now, then there's a final key witness. Now, um, this is a guy by the name of Andrew Bellwood. He was witness number 97 in this court that had already cost like almost $100 million. Now, some say this was perhaps the most disturbing testimony of the entire trial. However, he might have also been the witness that he team put through the ringer more um now he said that um he used to live on robert's property for a short time in march of 1999 he told the jury about an interesting conversation he had with the defendant one night apparently this is going to weird you out too apparently they were sitting in robert's bedroom watching tv when robert suggested they take a trip into town and pick up a prostitute 
After discussing the possibility, they decide not to go. And that's when the conversation took an odd turn. Andrew claimed Robert suddenly pulled a set of handcuffs out from underneath his mattress. Then he said he preferred having anal sex with sex workers he brought back to the house. Andrew said Robert acted out what he did to the women once he had them face down on his bed. Apparently, he would pull their hands behind their back and slap the cuffs on them. Then he would stroke their hair and whisper in their ear, everything will be okay. It's over now. And that's when he would wrap a belt or wire around their neck and strangle them. Andrew said while he was telling me the story, it was almost as if there was a woman on the bed. Is that is that a bad thing? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I can't honestly answer that one. <laughs> I'm just I'm asking for a friend. Some, some women charge extra for that. <laughs> exactly. I'm just, okay. Now here, <laughs> it sounds fucked up the way that I put it, but let me explain why. Because some men and women are into that. Yes. You know, I'm not saying they the whole call it consensual part. rape. Yes. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not saying the whole, maybe not the whole fucking uh, killing part of it. No. But, um, you know, the like consensual rape, BDSM, you know, different things. Like, I've been with several chicks that like their ass spanked hair pulled in for me to choke them. Nothing? Okay. I, no, I you know, had something to say, but I kept it to myself. Because I was like, yeah, I do, baby. But no. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> You know what? I had to do it. You've done that to me. You, I have, just throw, uh, you have made me want to throw up in my mouth so many times. Now I have to give a disclaimer. Jan, Tammy's mom, I'm only for you, baby. You know that. <laughs> me, you, me rubbing your butt, telling you, you, telling you you're a naughty girl. Stop it! As we spoon. Anyways, after that, <laughs> after that, Andrew told the jury Robert allegedly said once the women were dead, he'd take them to his slaughterhouse and butcher them. He'd feed part of the remains to his hogs. What he didn't throw to the pigs was went into a 45-gallon barrel he later disposed of at the rendering plant. Now, the prosecutor asked why he had never gone to the authorities with the information Robert had told him. Andrew said he was high on crack and drunk and didn't know how much to believe of the story or if it was even true. I really don't know, didn't know what to make of it. There was part of me that thought it was pretty whacked out. Then Andrew was asked why he wasn't living on the farm when he, Robert was arrested in 2002. He said later that same month, Robert accused him of taking some of his tools. After the pig farmer beat him up, he was forced to leave the property. That makes sense, man. Sometimes you, know, you got to leave a property after you get your ass kicked. Right? Well, Andrew also said that when him and Robert first met, they immediately hit it off. And the pig farmer offered him a place to stay on the property. Not long after moving in, the two discussed becoming partners in crime. And they started by borrowing a tractor from the neighboring farm. Before they returned it, they removed the new tires and placed them with older set. After they stole the tires off the neighbor's tractor, Robert allegedly suggested they go to a local government way station to steal some lumber from a truck. It was shortly after that when the conversation was said to have taken place. Hey, look, man, tires are expensive. Like, the tires on my truck run 400 bucks a pop. I can't imagine tractor tires. Oh, I know. You know, and lumber? Have you not seen lumber prices oh, that yeah. keep going up? That shit's expensive. I totally get it. Mm-hmm. I get it. I, I don't condone it. It's fucked up. Don't steal from people because that's fucked up. But yeah. I kind of get the logic, man. No, no, totally. You totally. know, you're talking four tires, four tractor tires. I'm assuming these are good-sized tires. They're probably over freaking like a grand a piece, even in Canadian money. Because <laughs> Canadian money is only worth 75 cents on the dollar on average to, to U.S. money. <laughs> no, I was just laughing because I saw an episode of Whose Line Is It Anyways when they were talking about that. But yeah, I bet you that that's like four grand worth of tires at least. Yeah. Probably, you know, I, I don't doubt it, you know. But then, under under cross examination, uh, they 
What? Oh, I'm sorry. Talking to your fucking microphone. I, I thought I did. I, I apologize. I apologize. Jesus Christ. <sighs> Don't beat me. No. I'm taking you. That's it. You know what? I'm taking you to the cockpit. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I've been training for this my whole life. <laughs> It's like Rocky Balboa down there. I pulled down my pants and, and, and it's knocking out Russians. <laughs> Apollo Creed. That's right. It's knocking out Apollo Creed, you know. <laughs> then afterwards, it looks up with its black eye and goes, Adrian! <laughs> it's in the shower. <laughs> oh, yeah, man. It, I, I woke up one morning and was looking for it and it was running up and down stairs. It was just, I was like, whoa. That's and one punching. act frozen meat carcasses no it was punching some meat all right <laughs> and that guy was not happy <laughs> i can't even so anyways <laughs> you're welcome under, under cross-examination adrian brooks immediately questioned the nature of andrews and robert's friendship and suggested they hardly knew each other he asked the witness if the story was fabricated so the prosecution would believe Robert trusted him, and Andrew replied, wrong. So under further questioning, he finally confessed that he had never really lived on the property. In fact, he'd only spent approximately four nights there before the alleged conversation had occurred. He didn't know why Robert would tell him those things when they weren't even close friends. Bricks also asked why he had never told the authorities about the incident when he was originally questioned in 2002. Why did he wait until a couple days before he was scheduled to testify to reveal what actually happened? Because he was at a bakery and he was afraid of the cockpit. <laughs> and then, of course, he tore his testimony apart. After Brooks got Andrew to admit that they were hardly friends at all, he started tearing apart the rest of his testimony. He asked if the handcuffs he saw that night were real or a child's toy. Would the witness even know the difference? Andrew responded, I'm 110% sure he pulled handcuffs from underneath the mattress. I believe them to be real because of their shiny consistency. He knows his toys. <laughs> Right. Then Brooks addressed Andrew's somewhat extensive criminal record. Uh, that's when the jury found out that 37-year-old truck driver and, for and commercial fisherman used to struggle with alcoholism and a daily crack habit. Now, while he was in his addiction, he racked up charges of public mischief, theft, fraud, and possession of stolen property. Granted, those are all misdemeanors. However, they still allude to the fact he might not be trustworthy. According to official police records, when Andrew was renting a basement suite in, I can't even pronounce the name, Nanaimo? N-A-N-A-I-M-O. Na-na-na-na. Hey, hey, hey. Goodbye. Now, he broke into the main house and stole several valuable items, including a TV, in order to buy drugs. And when the police initially questioned him about the theft, he claimed someone else took the items. Amateur. He didn't steal a freaking curling iron, a blow dryer, or a remote. So or you a teabag or chicken. Or teabags or chicken. <laughs> Amateur. God, what's up with your criminals up there, Canada? Jesus Christ. Let's get with the program. That's Next. right. God damn. Yeah. So he later admitted he had, he had originally lied to the authorities and actually committed the crime. Since he gave law enforcement false information, he was indicted on public mischief and theft charges. He accepted a plea bargain, at which time he was ordered to get off the drugs. Now, he told Brooks, I'm telling you, I'm deeply scarred by all the events. Yes, I do remember these events and where the crack cocaine took me. That, that is one of the, de the deepest and most regrettable scars of my drug use. I remember all the people I have defrauded with great remorse. 
Now, when Brooks continued to question Andrew about his past, the witness became testy. He accused the lawyer of trying to cast him in a poor light with the jury. He said he was sincere in his testimony and his memory of the alleged events was clear. Then he claimed the police records and court transcripts associated with his criminal past weren't accurate. He said, you're manipulating to make yourself look good. Lying bastards. Yeah, he said he would be a fool to lie about his minor charges from 1999 under oath, especially when they were, com- especially when they were held in comparison with the severity of the charges Robert was being tried for. And we were all listening to Prince. <laughs> like it's 1999. Yeah. Now... After all of the human, I'm human, after all the witness testimony was heard, it was time for both sides to volley their closing arguments. It started with the prosecutor, Mike Petrie, methodically reviewing all the significant physical evidence and damaging witness testimonies. Now, according to an article published by the Vancouver Sun, the physical evidence was found within 110 yards of Robert's trailer on the farm and the trailer he lived in and a, the trailer he lived in and, a, and entertained prostitutes in. There's, these are some items submitted for the jury's pro- consideration, okay? Buckets of human body parts, unidentified DNA collected from several items, including several sets of teeth believed to be from victims, DNA identified as belonging to several of the women, remains of two women in the freezer, and a revolver with the dildo attachment with the DNA from at least one victim. Now, Is that bad? <laughs> no, I saw yours in your room the Just other asking for a friend. <laughs> just don't understand that of the 61 items containing dna from the missing prostitutes approximately five of them were also linked to robert there were several statements robert made while he was being interrogated by detectives who were considered incriminating the video evidence from the conversation he had with the undercover officer planning in a cell in which he said he had a goal of murdering 50 women now then there was witness testimony. One eyewitness testified they saw Robert in the same room where a female body was hanging. Several witnesses could verify he had a connection with several of the missing low-track prostitutes. One witness testified they had a detailed conversation with Robert in which he gave them graphic details on how he strangled and butchered the women before he tossed their remains to his hogs. Before the de- defense began their closing, Petrie argued, let's have a reality check. This case is about the police finding the remains of six dead human beings, essentially, in the accused's backyard. Now, it was time for Adrian Brooks to give his closing argument. He began by telling the jury there wasn't a definitive link between his client and the victims. He said the entire investigation was poorly conducted, the task force was negligent, the search was clumsy, and the evidence was contaminated. Not to mention, Robert lacked the intelligence it would take to mastermind the abduction, murder, and disposal of so many women. Now, Brooks argued that his client never actually confessed to the murders. Rather, he simply repeated information the authorities had fed him. And when he, he heard the lies the detectives were telling him, he responded because he was afraid of what would happen to him. According to Brooks, he did not have the knowledge of the murderer. Now, the defense attorney told the jury if Roberts said his goal was to kill 50 women, the statements were only made to enhance his status among other inmates. All the defendant was guilty of was being a warm-hearted, compliant man who allowed people with questionable motivations to stay on his property. That, along with the DNA evidence that couldn't be identified and testimony of drug-addicted eyewitnesses with with a shoddy memory should be enough reasonable doubt. Now, Brooks also reminded the jury there was no definitive smoking gun. Pointing to Robert. Um, yeah, there was. It had a dildo strapped to it. <laughs> we went over that. I'm just saying. Just saying. Unless I, unless we're talking about a different case, there was a smoking gun. 
Anyways, he said there was no smoking gun pointing to Robert as the murderer. For instance, the method in which the victims had been dismembered wasn't even remotely similar to the way the farmer dismembered his butchered pigs. Not only that, a significant portion of the evidence indicated the murders were committed by someone else. He specifically named Pat Casanova as an obvious possibility. Now, before the jury, the trial was handed over to the jury, the prosecution was allowed to counter the defense's closing. He said... He addressed the question of Robert's intelligence, saying it didn't matter in the long run, especially since he had, was an experienced butcher accustomed to death and had a disposal method that was nearly foolproof. He told the jury, common sense should dictate your verdict. They, didn't, they shouldn't fall for the straw man argument the defense was trying to use to indicate the crimes were committed by an unknown perpetrator. Um, then, the, uh, before the deliberations began, the judge had to issue his instructions to the jury. He, you know, so he gave them the fine points of the law and what was at stake and told them, you know, this is what you have to, you know, these are the questions you have to ask yourself. He goes, you only, and then he said uh, to the jury that the court, what the court meant when they talked about reasonable doubt. He told them in order to find Robert guilty, they did not need to determine whether he had acted alone or had a partner or partners, the only thing they had to determine was that he participated. If they concluded he was present on the farm or in the vicinity of where the murders were committed, they were return to return a not guilty verdict. He also told them they might not have all their answers. He said, you, you have only to decide those matters that are essential for you to say whether the offenses charged have been proven beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, Robert Pickton's trial began... On January 22nd, 2007, right? Approximately 10 months later, jury deliberations began on November 30th. 10 months that same year. Some people were surprised by how long they, they took to return with their verdict. However, however, when you consider this was the longest trial in Canadian history and the sheer amount of evidence they had to sit through, their deliberation wasn't exactly a clear-cut process. The amount of evidence the jury in this trial had to consider before they could decide of Ro on Robert's guilt or innocence, would probably rival the evidence in Charles Ng's trial. Well, wait a minute. Is that American evidence or Canadian evidence? Because, you know, there's a well, there's a transfer difference there. <laughs> I was going to say. Well, let me look, look at it this way. There are more than 40,000 crime scene photos, more than 235,000 items collected, Upwards of 600,000 lab exhibits, 98 prosecution witnesses, 30 defense witnesses, 500,000 plus documents, including background information, and 20 plus hours of taped interrogation. So you got to take 25% off of that. <laughs> Just saying, but for comparison, because right. it's only worth 75% of the... Anyway, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. So anyways... Now all our Canadian <laughs> listeners are pissed off at me. Anyways, as the jury come through the evidence, in order to they had to decide what constituted a guilty verdict. So in order to deliver a guilty verdict, they had to respond affirmatively to the following five questions, right? On each of the separate murder counts. So that he was being charged with six murders, right? So with each murder, they had to ask these five questions. Is the victim dead? And was the victim killed by means of an un unlawful act? Was the victim killed at the time and place listed? Is Robert the person who killed the victim? Did Robert mean to cause the victim's death or mean to cause bodily harm that would be likely to cause death and was reckless about whether or not it would cause death? And was the victim's death planned and deliberate? And who wants who, who wants what for lunch? That's the <laughs> other question I'd ask. Right? But <laughs> Taco Bell? No. No. Nobody <laughs> wants the shits. God damn. What's wrong with you, man? 
Does anybody want explosive diarrhea for lunch? Let's do that. That'll, that'll take you 10 months to, do, to deliberate. That's definitely a 10 monther right there. Right. Man, if you're eating Taco Bell every day, somebody's got to clean that room up and you're leaving in a cloud of stink and shame. Can't wear so, those pants or those socks or shoes anymore. That's fucked up. Well, and then unlike so many other high profile cases we've seen here in the United States, don't make me mention Casey Anthony. Um, I know I had to scratch my back so I had to reach. So, <laughs> There's the not a tree available. Yeah, shut up. This jury also had instructions to find guilt on lesser charges. For instance, if they could respond in the affirmative to question one through four, but not five, he would be guilty of second degree murder. If they agreed on question one through three, his conviction would be manslaughter. However, if they could only say yes to questions one and or two, he would be cleared of all the charges for that victim. Okay, fair enough. Okay, now... At one point, they had to suspend jury deliberations because... Of Taco Bell. No. The, because uh, the jury required it. They finally uh, submitted... The jury foreperson told the bailiff they had a question for the judge to clarify the third question they were required to answer. Are you able to say yes if we infer the accused acted indirectly? So when he received that question, he realized that he was not clear in his... Uh, in his jury orders. So he began by admitting their question was valid because he had made an error. So when he issued his initial instructions, I have concluded I was not sufficiently precise. I was in error with respect to three paragraphs of your charge. I regret I misinformed you. It was inadvertent. Now, the defense motion for a mistrial based on the judge's mistake, but it was denied because the jury hadn't returned their verdict yet. So they couldn't use the judge's, you know, make inadvertent, you know, misleading as a grounds for mis mistrial. You know what I'm saying? Yep, I do. Okay, because some people will be like, oh, that's a mistrial. No, because the jury hadn't finished deliberating yet, so therefore the judge could amend his original jury instructions. So he did do, do that, right? And so um, I'm not going to go through what happened, but finally on December 9, 2007, after deliberating for over nine days, the jury sent word they had reached a verdict. Robert Picton was not guilty on all six counts of first-degree murder. However, the jury found him guilty on all six counts of second-degree murder. And fighting of the cocks! <laughs> now, the decision caused both disappointment and shock among the people in the courtroom. They were shocked because they felt the prosecution had proven their burden for first-degree murder. They were disappointed because although Robert would be sentenced to life in prison, he was eligible for parole in as few as ten years. The decision of parole was left up to the judge. Now, the jury's decision was clear. They didn't believe the prosecution proved the murders had been planned or carried out with deliberation by Robert. No, they did. They, yeah. Or they didn't believe he had acted alone, even though they obviously believed he had some involvement. According to some jurors, there was one thing preventing them from returning a conviction of first degree murder. There was no obvious smoking gun pointing to Robert as a sole perpetrator or mastermind behind the murders when all was said and done the cost of the investigation and court proceedings exceeded a hundred million dollars with the second degree murder conviction legal analysts predicted the crown would not go forward with another trial for the remaining 20 counts of murder especially since the prosecution wasn't able to prove first degree in the first trial that meant it would become increasingly difficult for a jury to convict Robert on any future charges. Therefore, as the likelihood of a conviction diminished, there was no way for them to justify the added expense of more trials. So, there you go. 
Jesus Christ, we're finally done with this Picton asshole? Well, I just think it's so bizarre, because I don't think he acted alone. I don't think he did either. I don't think he acted alone at all, because you can't tell me that people who were on that farm continuously did not see anything happen. No. Or didn't see evidence of something happening. And I agree. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, I'm not saying that Robert didn't have any involvement, I just don't think he did it alone. That's it? That's it. All right. First, before we start our bullshit to get out of this episode, I need you guys to all do me a favor. I'm going to start mentioning this every episode, but get on to whatever, however you're getting this show. If it's, if you're downloading it from Stitcher or Spotify or Amazon, or give us a decent review, okay? Because uh, one of our serial killers actually bitched that we got one bad review. <laughs> so, <laughs> our, our guard dog. Our guard dog, man. <laughs> who happens to like us a lot. So, <laughs> remember, you can send us an email at BrutalNation at TwistedBlueLLC.com. Check us out on Medium, Crime Beat on Medium, and wherever you get your blogs. Log on to Facebook and join Citizens of Brutal Nation. Join us for the chat. You have a good time. You know, you can give me shit personally. I don't give a crap. <laughs> this show's copyright 2023 by Twisted Blue LLC. All rights are reserved. And if you're hearing this or any part of this on anybody else's podcast or show, they're lying. Steven Bastards. And we will see you guys later. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody.